Good morning. This Sunday marks a time of transition for us. As the local expression of the church, it means that we are transitioning from our recently concluded Walking in Faith series and into a season that's universal for the broader church, Advent. The word Advent comes from Latin, meaning arrival or to come. We use the term Advent because it marks a season of waiting in the church. And our theme for this year invites us to consider that time of waiting by asking us a question. What are you waiting for? We wait for a lot of things in our life. The broad answer to that question, what are you waiting for, will vary day to day, year to year for any of us. Allow me to indulge in three stories of waiting from my life. Story number one. In May of 1999, the Backstreet Boys were releasing their Millennium album. And I was so excited for this musical masterpiece to grace its appearance in my possession that I called the local HMV. And for those of you who are much younger than me, that was the go-to mall record store at the time. And I asked them to reserve a copy for me just in case they sold out. It should be noted that in 1999, there was no risk of an HMV under-supplying a Backstreet Boys album, and so there was no risk of them selling out. But I was so eager to listen to and own this new album because I had waited for it and anticipated it since the release of their last one, and I was not disappointed when it finally graced my Discman. Story number two. Youth, I'll tell you more about that later. Story number two. When I did the candidating process to be hired for my position at the church, I went through a series of meetings with different groups from the church, and then I did a candidating sermon. The week after I had preached, the church gathered to vote on me entering into the position. It just so happened that I was out of town that weekend, uh, the weekend of the vote, for a wedding, and so I was expecting a call from our moderator at the time to let me know the results of the vote Sunday afternoon. I vividly remember being in the car, driving uh, back home from this wedding, just holding onto my phone, wondering when it might ring and let me know what happened. That day felt very long, and though I was able to find some means of distraction, it was difficult to think of anything else other than what the result might be. I knew this phone call had the potential to alter the trajectory of my life, but there was nothing I could do to make it happen faster. So I waited. Story number three. Our son Lincoln was nine days overdue. Some would say that nine months feels pretty long to wait when such an important person is about to arrive, But those added nine days were the hardest. Every single day I woke up, also every single night, several times, I woke up very aware that it could be now, it could be any time. And for nine days, I was still left waiting and anticipating. Everything in our life was geared towards waiting that day, or those nine days. Andrew had the car every day so that he could quickly get home if needed. I would check over my hospital bag and my checklist repeatedly. Somehow I still managed to forget my wallet on the day, but that's a separate story. I ate spicy food. I went for walks. 
our whole beings were ready and waiting, waiting for Lincoln every single day. These are stories of waiting. And I hope it's obvious that while each of these stories illustrates a kind of waiting, that they grew in importance over time and significance in the sequence that I read them in. Waiting encompasses so much of our lives, but never with the same amount of impact. I have waited for cookies to finish in the oven, and I've sat and I have waited to know if medical results would mean I would lose someone I loved or be able to hold on to them a little bit longer. These are not the same thing. There's a different kind of attentiveness that comes from waiting for something life-altering. It draws our whole being into the wait, our bodies tense with anticipation, our minds reel with the possibilities, and our spirit longs to be satisfied by the wait ending. It's an active waiting. The psalm that Lacey read earlier today, uh, in it we see a depiction of active waiting. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. This text speaks of earnestness, longing, a thirst that is not easily satisfied. It alludes to an attentiveness to God that is zeroed in, that is focused. God is the only priority here, and only God will satisfy the waiting that the psalmist is depicting. This act of waiting is active because it's taking up all of this person's focus, time, and energy. Our main passage today, the passage that we read from Luke, also describes a scene of active waiting. For context, Jesus includes this story in the midst of a larger teaching time that spans over Luke chapters 11 to 13. Our passage is located right in the middle in chapter 12. And chapter 12 has a particular theme of knowing the singular importance of prioritizing God over all things. Chapter 12 is packed with instruction and with wisdom. It includes Jesus teaching us not to be afraid of things on earth, but to in instead take solace in the fact that God is above all earthly things. It includes Jesus warning us about the power of greed and instructing believers to focus their hearts, minds, and resources towards God. It teaches us not to worry about food or clothing or body because God will provide for us. That the kingdom of God is more worthy of our focus than anything else because God's care for us extends even beyond our earthly focus. As I said before, this is a chapter filled with a particular theme of knowing the singular importance of prioritizing God over all things. And so it is following those group of teachings that start off chapter 12 that we reach Jesus' instructions on watchfulness that we're going to zero in on today. But as always, it's so helpful for us to understand what's going on around a particular passage to see how it belongs among this broader and very intentional teaching time by Jesus. 
a teaching time that guides us in a direction toward a big idea that we are invited to give our full attentiveness to God. Let's explore how this particular passage does that for us. In the passage, Jesus explains that we are to be dressed for service and keep our lamps lit as if we were servants in a household waiting for the master of the house to return from a wedding banquet. The readiness is required because when he returns, it's up to make sure that they are able to get to the door and open it, welcoming him home properly. We're going to skip over the middle verse 37 for now. And the second half of the passage then points out that the servants will not know when the master will come home, so they must be prepared for any time. This description by Jesus shows us the act of waiting that I've mentioned throughout the sermon. The waiting takes place in being prepared, being dressed for the task ahead, and ensuring that the lamps are lit, meaning that you have the supplies needed in order to be able to successfully do the wait. And it takes place in attentive patience. There is uncertainty over when the wait will finally be over, so the attentiveness is required to be truly ready for any moment when the master comes home. That uncertainty really stands out to me. I remember the first time I was meeting uh, my future sister-in-law, Andrew's sister. She was arriving on a late flight from BC to Winnipeg, And for whatever reason, I was just so exhausted that evening. I was so tired that as I sat in a chair and waited for her arrival, I almost fell completely asleep sitting up. I probably would have if Andrew's mom hadn't helped me to stay awake. My excitement to meet Andrew's sister was real, but it received deep competition from my overwhelming fatigue. Staying up through the night to wait for someone is hard. Staying up when you also have no idea when they might arrive is even harder. This is not a picture of an easy wait. This is a picture of a wait that is being completed only because of the determination and knowledge that the task before the servants is very important. And why is the wait that Jesus depicts here so important? Why is this analogy telling us that it's so important to wait? Because it is an analogy of us waiting for Jesus himself. Verse 40 reveals that you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for Jesus. Advent is a time of waiting for Jesus. It's a landmark in our calendar that reminds us of the long wait that God's people had between the Old Covenant and the new one they were anticipating. They didn't know when Jesus would come, but they were invited into this act of waiting that would keep them ready for when he arrived. The servants wait in a way that they have been asked to. As servants, they are meant to dress a certain way. They are meant to make sure the supplies that they need to do the wait, such as the lamps, are adequate for the time that they need them for. And they are required to be ready for when the master of the house comes home. They wait in a way that they have been asked to. Their readiness in this scene is based on what is expected of them. So this begs the question, how have we been asked to wait for Jesus? What is the expectation of us? How do we read this parable in such a way that we're able to determine 
what we might also do in the here and now to be ready while we wait. In his time on earth, Jesus told us that the most important commandments were to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told us um, in the very chapter we find ourselves in Luke to seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus invited us to take up our cross and follow him and much more. So it seems fitting to me that our own act of waiting parallels that of the servants by making sure that we are waiting in a way that Jesus has asked us to, just as the servants wait in a way that the master had asked them to. And it seems clear to me that Jesus asks us to wait in a way that is actively pursuing and contributing to God's kingdom. A month ago, I preached on Hebrews 8 and 9, and in my sermon, I shared a bit about the writings of N.T. Wright in Surprised by Hope. In the book, Wright posits that every act of goodness, creativity, and love on earth is something that contributes to God's kingdom. And that when Christ returns to bring the kingdom into fullness, those things will have added to the redemptive work of Christ. I bring us back to that thought now because I feel like this is exactly the kind of act of waiting that Jesus calls us to. We wait in a way that Jesus asks us to, which is to be active and involved in our world, telling others about the kingdom of God, growing in our depth of love for God and for neighbor, and bringing the hope and light of Christ to others. Those things all communicate our readiness to receive Christ when he comes. Though we don't know the hour when Jesus will come, we can be ready by how we live and how we love. It's a beautiful picture, but there's more beauty to be found yet in our passage. I mentioned earlier that I skipped over verse 37 of our text, and it's time for us to return there. This is how it reads. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. Let me read that one more time and have you really think about the words. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. This is the single wildest verse that this passage contains, and I don't use that word lightly when I talk about the Bible. If we go back and omit this verse, and read the list of all the things the servants need to do to be ready and prepared for the master, to be dressed, to have supplies ready, to stay up and wait for whenever he arrives so you can leap to the door ready and to welcome him home. I think it's very natural that when I listen to this, I get a picture of a very authoritative master and and a picture of dutiful submission from the servants. It's completely logical and would be a very fitting narrative in the time of Jesus. But verse 37 takes that narrative and flips it right upside down. Because what actually happens when the master returns to this house in the story 
It's not a picture of a powerful master and submissive servants. It says that those who are ready and waiting are blessed, and they will be served by him. Their wait will be satisfied not by the ability to then serve and wait on the master, but to be treated as guests by him and be served. I cannot articulate how huge this is fully. I know that's my task this morning, and I hope I'm getting to it, but it's so big that I have difficulty putting it to words. As we read through the Gospels, we encounter so many ways in which Jesus subverts the um, power structures of his day. But this is one that I've always missed until I was preparing for this sermon. You blink, and you miss verse 37. But it's the most important part of this passage. The entry of sin into our world introduced the earth and its inhabitants to brokenness that invades every part of our lives. We see it all around us, and we also see it inside of ourselves. But Jesus came to bring light into that darkness, to restore the earth back to what is meant to be at its origin point as articulated in Genesis, a world where we live in right relationship with God and with our neighbors, The arrival of Jesus at Advent ushers in the beginning of that redemption. As Jesus lives his life, he then goes on to reveal how this redeemed state will look in actuality. He actively goes to children, women, the sick, and elevates them in a society that seeks to keep them down. He calls out the powerful and the rich for their lack of compassion and generosity. He allows himself to be interrupted in order to meet the needs of faithful people who are looking to him for hope. These are glimpses of the world redeemed, of the kingdom of God, a world in which brokenness no longer divides us into the powerful and the powerless, and where we no longer suffer, where our weight ends and our faithfulness is seen and responded to by Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, this Jesus is the master of the household, and this Jesus, with all these titles and with all his glory, invites us to wait, not so that he can be satisfied, but so that we can be. The picture of his return is one where he looks at those faithful, those waiting, and leans in to care for them, to say, job well done. The question of what are you waiting for can be answered 101 different ways on any given day of our lives. But our active waiting, our attentive waiting, our waiting that involves longing, our focus, and our heart, that waiting is meant for Jesus. This is what we are waiting for, and it will be worth the wait. So let us be dressed and ready for Jesus, actively participating in the pursuit of God's kingdom so that every act of love, compassion, and justice makes the world ready to receive Jesus our Lord. Amen.